0: I'm so thrilled today to have an old friend, Lena Mosley joining us. I can't help but think back to, and this dates us all, think back to about 15 years ago. I think Mark was just starting as an academic or hadn't even started as a legal academic. And um, I was early in my adventures. And we were both in North Carolina, and we came across the work of this political scientist, Lena Mosley, and we called her up randomly and asked, can can we talk to you? It, It sounds like you actually know how to do research. And she was incredibly kind. And the one thing that was so crucial that she helped us with was she told us, where to get data. In particularly, she revealed to us the secrets of Guildhall. And so much of Mark and my early work was based on research that uh, derived from there. And, And Lena was so generous and kind and asked nothing of us, but shared everything. So we will always be grateful to her. But today, we've asked her to join us to talk about her wonderful new paper on denomination. However, before we start down the route of discussing that paper, I'm hoping that we can start with some broader brushstrokes, in particular, the world of sovereign debt research. Now, as Mark and I see the world of sovereign debt research Mark, you should correct me. It's dominated by economists. 99.9% of all the people uh, at the IMF research departments or the ECB or the U.S. Treasury who, who work on these kinds of questions or in research departments at different universities and think tanks seem to me to be economists. And even when there are legal questions or political science questions, and it is really hard to escape politics and law in sovereign debt. Uh, economists study these questions. And uh, at least to my mind, they think at least lawyers are really only valuable to fix their parking tickets. And so it, it is, it's often frustrating to be doing research in this area, which is so completely dominated. And so Lena, I, You've been in this field a little longer than we have, and you're from a different discipline. I was wondering if you could talk to us about your perspective as a political scientist being in this field and also whether as a political scientist, you're much more incorporated, whether economists read your papers and vice versa, just a general lay of the land.
1: Thanks, me too. Um, well, I would I would preface this by saying that, um, you know, many political scientists have to be convinced that they should care about sovereign debt. Uh, but to the extent that political scientists do think about sovereign debt, um, I think it's partly because we think about fiscal policy as being a central function that, that states fulfill. Uh, and so if we wanna think about governments taxing and government spending, then governments borrowing is, is gonna be part of that. Uh, And we think about sovereign borrowing as something that enables governments to do a whole range of things and financial globalization uh, being something that can provide a real opportunity for governments who maybe don't have access to other sources of financing, uh, being able to to borrow. Um, So I think that's that's one way that political scientists come at this is we study states, we study what states do. And so we wanna think about sovereign, um, sovereign debt. Um, But it's also the case that um, we can think about um, sovereign debt as being a place where states and markets intersect, and we might think about the extent to which creditors, whether those are official creditors or private sector creditors, um, exercise leverage over governments. Um, And this happens most obviously in times of debt crises, but it also can happen as part of the more routine process of accessing capital. So when I was in graduate school in the 1990s, there was a big debate happening among political scientists about the extent to which economic globalization constrained the ability of governments to do the things that they would want to do otherwise. So we sort of talked about this as um, markets as a constraint on government autonomy, or about the extent to which governments kind of had had room to move uh, vis-a-vis markets. Uh, And this really kind of got to these broader, really bigger, deeper questions about the relative power of capital versus labor or versus versus governments. Um, And so I think from that point of view, you could then think about how political scientists might be interested in things like, well, how do sovereign bond markets react to elections or to changes in government or to uh, civil conflict or how do um, financial markets respond to political institutions like the rule of law or the level of democracy? There are lots of papers like this from political scientists. Um, Or how do bond markets think about things like reputation and credibility? Um, And so there are lots of ways in which political scientists um, sort of would by virtue of the kinds of questions we always ask uh, want to think about um, about sovereign about sovereign debt, um, and of course the other angle is when we think about international institutions and uh, cooperation, then this gets us into thinking about the role of international financial institutions, um, and again the resolution of, of debt crises, or more, much more generally how politics affects um, conditional lending, and um, so. lots of places where political scientists come in. Now, to your question about the extent to which economists read the papers of political scientists, uh, I think there's always this this, this, this sense um, that um, political scientists read more in economics uh, than economists read in political science. And I don't want to say that's true of every economist uh, or of every political scientist, but I do think there's a little bit of this sort of uh, frustration sometimes when uh, someone in the field of economics seems to be claiming to have discovered politics, right? And we're sort of waving our hands and saying, "Well, actually, we thought about that stuff a long time ago. Uh, had only you sort of looked to what to what we were doing." So I, I do share your sort of lawyer frustration sometimes with um, that kind of lack of equality in that cross disciplinary exchange. And I should just say, to this is part of I think why um, I was so happy uh, when you and uh, and Anna and Ugo and others. Started bringing us all together in the in the context of decon right? Getting to sort of talk across these uh, these boundaries because I do think that we each come at these questions around uh, sovereign debt from our own disciplinary approaches, and it's really nice to kind of talk across those boundaries.
2: So Lena, we had wanted and are excited to talk about um, currency denomination with you, but I, I wonder if I can ask a somewhat um, sort of higher level question to start us off, which is that much of your work, at least as I understand it, as someone who can't even fix a parking ticket, I I have to say, um, deals with the political economy of not just sovereign debt, but of the structure of sovereign loans, which is something that I find especially interesting. And of course, the, the denomination of the loan is, is, one important structural feature, but of course there are all kinds of others. There's the choice of governing law. There's the um, the composition of your creditor base. There are all kinds of things that are essentially structural questions that maybe lawyers often think about, or at least in some respects, but that are. Um, important, I think, from the context of your work. And so if I can just ask you to to give us some background, how should we think about questions of loan structure as they intersect with questions of politics?
1: I would say that one way to think about this is that any sort of lending and borrowing behavior we observe is the result of this intersection of supply and demand, which is to say, you know, governments want money or they want money perhaps from a from a a certain type of creditor and they want it on particular terms. But also, of course, the creditors have to be willing uh, to to extend those loans. Right. And it's really hard for us as uh, as social scientists to observe supply and demand sort of independent of uh, of one another and And I think that we've spent a lot of time, at least we in political science, uh, really thinking about um, the supply side of that. That is to say, thinking about, well, how do creditors decide uh, whether and on what terms to allocate capital? So we can go back to my example of international financial institutions and we have folks thinking about, well, to what extent does strategic importance uh, color uh, the amount or the terms of IMF or World Bank lending? Or in the private sector, we might think about well, to what extent are um, bond market investors thinking about whether a country is democratic or not when they're when they're thinking about um, sovereign bond issues, and and that stuff is important, absolutely. And and I've written papers uh, like that myself, uh, but I think that we also need to flip it around a little bit and also think a little bit more about um, national governments uh, exercising some agency. When they're thinking about their demands for credit. And so that's not to say that the supply side doesn't matter, that how markets think uh, isn't going to be important, but it is to say that in many situations, and not only for wealthy uh, democracies, but in many situations, governments are able to make some choices uh, in terms, uh, as you say, of sort of how they borrow how much they borrow, at what terms they borrow. Um, so there's an excellent book, for instance, by uh, by Jonas Bunte from a couple of years ago called Raise the Debt, where he talks about governments making choices um, across different kinds of financing instruments. Um, one way I like to think about this is that governments are going to be thinking about uh, domestic politics and about their own political survival when they're thinking about going out and getting credit. Uh, And those considerations around political survival might look different for different kinds of governments, depending on whether it's a democracy or a non-democracy and depending on how close the next election is or sort of what the important interest groups are. Uh, But that those kinds of domestic considerations are going to be part of what drives um, government's demand for credit, but also their, their demand for certain kinds of credit. So just to give you a quick example, um, a government that is perhaps a little um, more worried about um, whether the public knows exactly what it's doing when it's getting credit, uh, and it may be a government that has a higher desire for opacity, uh, might all else equal be inclined to borrow uh, from say commercial banks as opposed to going out and doing a big, uh, very public bond issue. Uh, And those governments that worry about being criticized either for the terms of the lending or for the amount of the lending or for the lending at all uh, might be inclined to sort of, um, you know, hide their activity in these in these less um, these less less transparent instruments. Whereas we also sometimes see um, other governments sort of wanting to claim credit for the fact that they've been able to go out and access bond markets, maybe for the first time ever, maybe after a long drought, uh, and they really like the sort of publicness uh, of that kind of borrowing activity. And so we might see you know, governments with these different kinds of considerations uh, then choosing to borrow from commercial banks versus from the bond market, just to, just to give an example. And obviously, there's lots of this when we think about um, bilateral official lending as well in terms of whether governments are inclined or or less inclined to, let's say, borrow money from China or to choose China versus the World Bank to finance a a project.
0: So Lena, this sets us up beautifully uh, to talk about your your most recent paper, although I think you have a bunch of most recent papers, but the one on denomination. And in terms of uh, doing a little stage setting my understanding is that this work is in the tradition of the original sin research by folks like Barry Eichengreen, Hugo Panitza, and Ricardo Hausman. And so before we talk about your paper, I'm hoping you can help us set the stage by talking about uh, exactly what they... Um, Found and uh, how they set the stage, and then then maybe we can uh, understand better what it is that uh, you and your co-author uh, did to.
1: Sure. So uh, so this is uh, this is the the second paper um, I've written with my co-authors uh, Cameron Ballard Rosa and Rachel Wellhausen, um, and our sort of general approach. Um, is to collect data on um, government bond issues. And so really we're focusing on uh, what happens at the point of issue, uh, as opposed to what happens with respect to secondary market pricing or secondary market credit rating um, of these of these issues. So we're thinking at the point when governments go out and borrow, what does that look like? And so we have a first paper where we look at the effect of um, political institutions like being democratic or not, as well as global market conditions on government's propensity to borrow at all or to issue bonds at all. And then in this paper, we sort of say, well, okay, we know something about what explains when governments issue bonds, but we also want to think about the features of those bonds. And so uh, we're thinking here about whether the bonds are denominated in foreign or domestic currency, But of course, we also could think about, as Mark mentioned, uh, some of the legal terms, or we could think about the maturity structure, or we could think about the yield on the debt. So on currency denomination, um, there's this kind of existing uh, belief, and this this is the kind of the original sin idea, uh, that developing countries um, are really perceived as being quite risky. And part of the risk associated uh, with lending money to a developing country sovereign is currency risk. So the worry there is that if you lend money to a developing country sovereign uh, and it's in their own currency, in Mexican pesos, for instance, then you as an investor have to worry not only about will the government repay you in general, uh, but also uh, will the value of that currency depreciate between the time when you extend the credit and when, uh, when the loan is repaid. So to the extent that you worry that developing country currencies are prone to inflation or uh, prone to sort of uh, currency crashes, then it's gonna be really difficult to convince you that you want to buy their domestic currency-denominated bonds. So the original sin idea is that because of the the original sin, as it were, of being a non-OECD sovereign, you're gonna be forced to borrow in a foreign currency. That is, you're gonna be forced to issue your debt in dollars, euros, yen, some other uh, sort of global currency. Um, And what this means, of course, is that from the point of view of the government, the government is taking on the currency risk, right? That is to say that now it's no longer the investor who has to worry about a currency crash. Uh, It's the government, the debtor, who has to worry that if their currency crashes, uh, they're going to have to generate a lot more. They're going to need a lot more of that currency uh, to uh, to to repay in a foreign currency. That is to say that they're going to have to generate a lot more for they're going to generate the foreign exchange to cover the debt. But original sin as an idea basically says, well, investors are so nervous about domestic currency denominated sovereign debt uh, from emerging or frontier markets. They're never going to buy it. Right? And so the demand side um, might want to borrow in their own currency, but on the supply side, you just can't do it. And so what that predicts empirically is we ought to see um, the vast majority of sovereign bonds issued by developing countries being denominated in foreign currency. And that, and that, was, that was the case for a time. If we wanna go back to the 1990s, for instance, um, we see uh, foreign currency denomination being a very, a very common thing.
2: So if we do focus on the demand side, Lena, I I suppose a really simplistic way to think about it would be to say that, well, governments want to borrow in whatever, through whatever mechanism is going to give them the lowest cost of, of capital. And so they're going to, they're going to choose the currency denomination that does that. And yes, you know, maybe a government will borrow in a different currency or perhaps under a different governing law uh, you know for some other extrinsic reason maybe it wants to help set a yield curve for corporate borrowers who need to enter that market but in general you know it's just it's just all about cost of capital and yet you and your co-authors approach this question very differently and highlight a much broader range of of concerns that a government might have. And so as we go into break, I'm hoping you can kind of give us the the overview of how you approach it in the paper.
1: So I would say that maybe this is my political science uh, brain, but we come at this in terms of not assuming that governments are simply out there to minimize cost. That is to say that uh, governments might be willing to pay a higher cost uh, to borrow in exchange for getting some other things, and we could maybe put those other things into a general bucket uh, that we would label an insulation from from market pressures. Um, but so that you might be willing to pay slightly higher interest rates to borrow in your own currency because then you're not exposed to that risk of currency depreciation and that 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 real need to generate foreign exchange. Uh, this is also, I think, why you know we don't see governments only borrowing uh, uh, on the very kind of short end of the um, of the yield curve of the maturity uh, distribution. It's often much cheaper for governments to borrow short term, uh, but then they have to roll that debt over more frequency. This means they're going to get exposed to market pressures more often. And so we tend to see that governments are maybe balancing uh, in that case between financing costs and rollover risk. But I think the more general way to think about it is that Financing costs are part of what's going into the mix when governments are thinking about how to borrow, but they've got other considerations and that we've got some governments that are especially inclined to want to gain some insulation from uh, from pressures uh, around financing and around uh, currencies.
0: Well, this is a good time for us to go to break. And after the break, I'm hoping I can start out by asking about those other Considerations a little more. So, Lena, you, you really opened up an important set of issues that, that is illustrated by your papers uh, with Rachel and Cameron. And I want to ask about more detail and also about sort of the broader perspective. So you said additional factors beyond just the cost of capital and looking more broadly. And in this sense, you've inspired other researchers like us to not just look at data, but also talk to people in the on the ground, which I guess is uh, more in the vein of... Uh, our sociologist and anthropologist colleagues. And one set of people that I remember your emphasizing at a conference that you ran a few years ago uh, was uh, the folks in debt management offices. So inspired by you, Anna Gelper and our dear friend and I went around the world to ask people in debt management offices why they made certain choices about contract terms. So Mark, Anna and I have been studying collective action clauses for time immemorial. And in the context of that, we found collective action clauses are used almost exclusively in debt denominated uh, or governed by foreign law and denominated in foreign currency and not used in local law and local currency debt. So our conversation naturally uh, moved towards why do you issue some debt in local currency and some debt in foreign currency? Now we were asking them about the contract terms, but the, the folks at the debt management offices, you know, often would say, look, we're just bureaucrats. Our job is to get capital at the lowest cost for our political bosses and, to make sure that we construct a yield curve for the corporate entities in our countries and and that's it that that's the end of our story. And so the, it was fascinating to read your paper and um, see this very interesting perspective about you know the the right wing governments versus the left- wing governments and thinking about institutions. So I'm wondering how you got uh, to your um, to your set of theoretical constructs, uh, and you know what debt management office people said to you, or maybe what uh, private sector investors said to you. I, I w- want to know stuff on the ground.
1: Thanks, me too. I'm, I'm going to take a minute or two just to summarize what we do find, because I realize that not all of your listeners might have read the paper. <laughs> so, so let me just say that we. Um, we look at um, the period from 1990 to 2016, and we look at non-OECD sovereign, that's about 130 countries that issued uh, at least one, one government bond during this time. And so the issue level data set we have is something like 240,000 bond issues. Um, and so, and, and we're interested in this paper in um, you know whether this debt is being denominated, uh, what, what proportion of debt is denominated in Foreign currency versus domestic currency, um, and of course we are in our statistical analyses accounting for all the other kinds of things that you might think matter. You know, things that are picking up, for instance, sovereign creditworthiness levels of its existing debt uh, and the and the like. Um, and what we and what we find two things that we think are, are noteworthy. Um, the first goes back to the original sin idea, which is to say that we find that over time uh, there's an increasing proportion, and by the end of the period, sort of the vast proportion. Um, of these bonds are local currency denominated, right? Which is to say that original sin seems to have for many, many countries uh, outside of the OECD become a thing of the past. And we could tell a story about the kind of increased uh, risk acceptance or desire for diversification among investors as being being part of this, but for whatever reason, we see that it's much more common now to issue debt denominated in um, domestic currency and then, then, then we think about this question of well, all right, even though that's the case uh, overall, is there a variation in governments' propensity to do this? And again, um, you know, accounting for a lot of the kind of macroeconomic factors that we would want to uh, want to, to think about, uh, we find that uh, left-leaning governments are, are significantly more likely to dom- denominate in domestic currency than right-leaning uh, or centrist governments. So if we think about uh, you know, putting governments in buckets based on their ideology, uh, we could sort of see this partisan effect uh, and that it's more common for governments on the left to choose domestic currency denomination. And in the paper, we discuss why this might be, uh, going back to ideas around uh, kind of the traditional programs of, of left governments uh, and thinking about policies that sort of maybe advantage labor uh, versus capital or thinking more about sort of a desire to insulate from financial market uh, pressures. Um, and we can flip it around and think about right-leaning governments kind of, you know, welcoming sometimes the constraints uh, that markets generate and maybe even seeing foreign currency denomination as a means of tie as something that ties not only their hands, but also could tie the hands of their potential successors. So that's, that's sort of where, where we end up in terms of our argument and our findings. Um, your, your question is sort of, well, you know, to what extent are these debt managers um, really thinking about these kinds of, um, you know, autonomy from markets kind of considerations when they're out doing their doing their jobs? And I would say that I think that political scientists um, haven't done a lot to study debt managers. Right. So you and Anna going out and talking to debt managers, my occasion talking to debt managers, and I do more talking to people in the private sector. Um, we don't see a lot of that um, out there. And I don't know that we have a great sense uh, of how much autonomy these debt management offices have uh, vis-a-vis governments, right? And I, and I think that it certainly varies uh, across countries. Uh, certainly, uh, Talsada and his colleagues have papers on sort of the professionalization of debt managers, which isn't quite the same as the amount of autonomy they have. Uh, But I think that we still need to kind of figure out and unpack right like how much are these debt managers really kind of um, just carrying out mandates that are coming from governments uh, versus exercising some kind of independent uh, decision making. And I think that the way we tend to think about it in this paper is they are largely uh, responding to the political principles. That is, they're the agents, but depending on who their bosses are, they act differently uh, with respect to how they're how they're thinking um, about um, their, their issuance profile. Uh, but I but I would just say as a, as a general point, I think that we don't know as much as we should about how these entities operate. Um, So something else I'm working on right now, for instance, is just the nuts and bolts of um, how these debt management offices craft the roadshow presentations that they give to investors. And for instance, um, who they mention as peer countries and what kinds of comparisons they attempt to draw and how they attempt to position and market themselves. Uh, Really in some ways kind of nitty gritty, but, Given that we know that there are pure effects in the pricing of sovereign debt, um, potentially important. So that's a long-winded way of saying that um, I think it's great to go out and um, and and use the kind of use our qualitative methods to think about how debt managers make their decisions. And I think there's a lot for us to still uh, learn on that side.
2: We see just sticking with this this theme of the different practices between left-leaning and right-leaning governments. Do we see stark shifts in borrowing practices when um, we have a transition, maybe a sharp transition? I'm thinking of the Macri Fernandez transition in Argentina, for instance. Do we see the, the government's borrowing practices change quickly, change slowly? I'm trying to think about how this dynamic would work in practice
1: if i go back to an older um, example uh we could go back to um to brazil in the early 2000s uh, right and the entry of uh of, of lula um, mm-hmm. into office and you know if, if you sort of followed sovereign debt markets uh back in uh 2001 2002 2003 you saw a lot of anxiety um around uh that brazilian election uh and I think it's hard for people who study uh, the link between elections and sovereign bond markets to sometimes differentiate between um, market reactions in the election campaign that are really driven by we're uncertain about the outcome, and therefore we're having a hard time figuring out what to, how to how to price debt versus um, we're uncertain about what policies will be followed um, should a particular candidate win. Right? And so I think in Brazil, you had a, a lot, you both things going on for a time. That is you have sort of, it's not clear who's gonna win, it's a tightly fought election, but it's also not clear if Lula wins, is he gonna be kind of old lefty Lula or is he gonna be sort of more slightly market friendly, more neoliberal lefty Lula. Uh, and so that's, that's, that's going on there. Um, but there are a couple of interesting things that, that were happening in that context or that happened. One is that actually um, prior to that 2002 election, there is some evidence that the Debt Management Office uh, in Brazil anticipated that the 2002 election, no matter how it shook down, was going to be one that was going to generate a lot of kind of political uncertainty. uh, And that this might be a challenge with respect to the financing uh, and the refinancing of Brazilian debt. And so what you actually see there is that, you see, if you look at the, um, the, the profile of maturing issues, you see that the debt managers in Brazil seem to have made an effort. And, and in retrospect, they talk about doing this. Uh, they made an effort to avoid uh, issues that would mature uh, sort of during that election campaign. So, which is to say, they anticipated correctly that the secondary markets would be freaking out a little bit. And so they thought, well, that's okay, as long as we're not trying to bring out new debt issues and having to pay those higher premia during that time. So that's, a, that's a, I'm writing a paper with uh, Tim McDade, who's a PhD student at Duke and Peter Rosendorf at NYU that looks more systematically at the extent to which uh, governments and their debt managers try to sort of be sensitive to the electoral calendar when they're issuing. So that's interesting. But the other thing that's interesting is that a little bit later on, uh, so as we go toward the end of Lula's first term and into his second term, we see uh, Brazil uh, going back and refinancing a lot of its, or I should say, uh, rolling over a lot of its dollar-denominated debt into domestic currency-denominated debt, right? And so you do see this kind of, this seems to be this kind of concerted, uh, let's get this into local currency to the extent that we can effort. Now I should say that that is facilitated uh, in the mid 2000s by global liquidity, right? So actually, I, I w- did some interviews uh, in sort of 2004 and 2005 with folks in uh, on the on the supply side of capital markets, and they talked a lot about their kind of willingness to invest in domestic currency denominated debt in Brazil, right? So you know this is this is again something investors have to be willing to sort of bear this risk or at least to bear it at a cost. Um, but there, you, you did seem to see this kind of "let's get it out of dollars and let's get it into real" uh, going on on the on the part of uh, of Brazil. Um, and and Mark, I I wanted to mention as well um, because both you and me too have, have mentioned uh, the legal terms of debt uh, and the sort of you know as governing law being part of that. When we were um, collecting all of this issue level data uh, via Bloomberg, uh, we 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 were thinking about. Um, other features of debt and whether, whether and how governments are trading off between something like foreign currency denomination and maturity structure or, um, or the interest rate. And we wanted to include uh, something about the legal terms and the governing law, and we found that only about 20% of the bonds actually had data about their governing law. So, so, me to your point about uh, the extent to which domestic currency bonds are covered by domestic law, uh, we we can't actually look at that for a big chunk of the bond issues in our data set because those data simply are not were not recorded. Um, but that's certainly something that we suspect there are things going on uh, in terms of trade offs. There, we do find some evidence in the paper that domestic currency denomination uh, is associated uh, with uh, either shorter maturities, uh, so that is having to refinance debt more frequently, or it's associated with higher interest rates. And so again, we sort of can think about governments that might privilege domestic currency denomination, uh, it does come with, with a price uh, on the other terms of the bond.
2: So, um, and it's interesting you mentioned the the coding of legal terms that is there on Bloomberg. And I know um, when we looked at this a bit earlier, we saw um, the sort of infrequency of the, the coding that you mentioned, but also while governing law was pretty accurate, the coding they had for things, other legal terms, negative pledge clauses and things like that was wildly inaccurate on, on Bloomberg and Dealogic. So it seems like until people really start to get interested in legal terms, maybe there's no particular incentive for them to gather good data because the data on a lot of this stuff other than governing law seemed really terrible. Um, am, I, am I right to think that in many cases, this is kind of a long-term project for um, finance officials at uh, in a country? So I'm thinking... Just from the perspective of a left-leaning government, so I want to, in my simplistic thinking, and say, all right. So I want to borrow in domestic currency because that helps me retain, you know, policy flexibility. I can use monetary policy maybe to to promote my um, my policy objectives and, and I will be less constrained in my ability to do that if I have only local currency debt but it seems like as long as i've got this big inherited pile of foreign currency debt i'm you know i'm sort of stuck and i'm constrained until that pile gets down to the point where it's small enough that i don't really need to worry about it too much anymore so i'm imagining there's a dynamic where you you need to have a really substantial part of your debt stock in local currency before you really gain freedom. And it might take us a long time to get there. So I, is that, is my sense that this is a long-term project for many governments correct? And if so, I find that very interesting since we often think about political leadership as super short-term in their thinking.
1: Yeah, I think that's a really interesting way to think about it um, because one of the things that suggests is that, in terms of being able to shift the profile of your debt, uh, having a shorter average term maturity would be helpful, right? That is to say that if you are refinancing more of your debt by virtue of it being at uh, at short maturities, you have more of the opportunities um, about which, I'm uh, I'm about which we're we're talking, um, and and I and I'll just say that we haven't looked at uh, you know whether sort of um, when you have frequent turnover between left and right or between left and centrist governments uh, is there a different sort of set of behaviors versus uh, where you have a situation where a left government is in office and is pretty secure electorally and you know is, thinks it's going to win the next election right because you know if if you think that, you're gonna lose power in a couple of years, uh, you might behave differently than if you think you're gonna be in power for four years or or six years, right? Um, So another way to to come at this would also be to think about whether governments behave differently in their debt issues early in their terms, uh, where they think that they're gonna sort of be around to reap the benefits of how they behave uh, versus later in their terms, where they might think they're not gonna be around and they might think that they're gonna be sort of Governments of a different partisan stripe uh, in office after them. So we haven't we haven't done that sort of analysis yet, but I think it's certainly um, an interesting place to go in the future.
2: So Lainey, we've taken up a whole bunch of your time. I hope I can squeeze in one more question, and then I don't want to I don't want to speak for me too. Um, but he may have another question before we before we really let you go. But um, can we bring this sort of back? Full circle to the discussion of original sin we had at the beginning. Um, so do you view your findings as in some respects a challenge to the notion that um, there's this sort of inherent um, kind of flaw that that countries have to, to overcome in the sense that the, the inability to borrow in domestic currency really ties, really ties hands together. Was, was there a sort of implicit claim in the original sin literature that this is the way it would always be? And your research cuts against that, or does this fit more neatly with the original sin story as it was originally offered?
1: Well, I I would say that most of us probably don't want the arguments uh, we make to be tested against data in the future (laughs) because the world changes. So I published a book in 2003 where I argued that a big difference between OECD countries and non-OECD countries was that in OECD countries, investors really didn't worry at all about default risk. Um, so I don't want to be want to be responsible for the fact that default risk um, you know, really rears its head uh, later on, a few years later with the uh, with the with the eurozone crisis, right. So I would just say more generally that I don't know that the original sin claim says, you know, this is how it will always be versus this is how it is. right. And so if we were to go back fifteen or twenty years to when we see that original sin um, terminology being introduced, um it, it, it was a different time. That is to say that, we had fewer countries outside the OECD uh, issuing sovereign bonds, uh, and they did tend to issue that uh, issue their bonds in foreign currency. Perhaps we had kind of less of a willingness on the part of investors um, to buy domestic currency debt. Uh, Perhaps they felt less able to hedge their exposures or sort of more concerned about currency risk. Um, So I would would say that this is more of an update uh, than a challenge to to those those kinds of claims. Um, I think it's also important to keep in mind that in the paper, uh, we talk about the fact that governments with politically independent central banks and without a history of recent crises uh, are more able, all else equal, to sort of do this domestic currency um, debt issuance. And so it's left governments that that have kind of uh, delegated some of their monetary policy authority uh, to these um, more technocratic entities uh, are better able to pursue this strategy. And so one way to think about that is they've tied their hands in one way already through their central banks. Uh, and then they get a little bit of autonomy over here, right? But they don't have sort of complete uh, complete, and full autonomy. And then the other thing I would say is to, is to keep in mind as well that this is a paper that's about sovereign bonds. It's not about all sovereign borrowing. And so while the 130 non-OECD countries who have issued bonds, that's a much higher number than it would have been a couple of decades ago, it certainly doesn't get to all uh, all countries in the global south. So there certainly are a chunk of countries that are not able, uh, by virtue of their perceived credit worthiness, to issue bonds at all, right? And so they're going to be experiencing, um, I would say, you know, a higher level of constraints and a greater level of worry around financing and around sort of market pressures than the countries that make it into our data set.
0: This has been so interesting, but. I want to ask you a last question before we let you go. And that is about the impact of institutions like the World Bank and the IMF on this rise of local denominated currency. And the reason I ask is because this morning I was on a call with a bunch of economists and your paper came up going back to where we started from they knew about your paper. And they were saying, you know, for us, this is all determined by the choices made by the World Bank and the IMF. And I know you've thought about that. So I thought as we go to the end, maybe we could get your perspective on that.
1: So Major, let me ask, um, in in what way is this all determined by the IMF and the World Bank?
0: (laughs) Okay, so they, they didn't really explain but I think, and I've had this experience, whenever I've talked to sort of bank and fund officials about this shift in the sovereign markets, they often take the credit by saying, look, we created these markets. It's all about us. It's all about creating self-sufficiency. And so, you know, I think that's a story that's out there.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, it's it certainly, um... Is the case that um, the IMF and especially the World Bank have spent a lot they've spent a lot of, of effort um, focusing on sort of um, debt management practices, debt management offices, right? This kind of push to professionalization and investor relations. And, you know, from a more kind of technocratic point of view, how ought governments to think about, about debt issuance and how ought they to think about you know, balancing uh, between things like uh, financing costs and rollover risk, and um, and so I, so I think we could we could probably say that they do have have some um, some agency uh, in that, uh, and certainly they they would they encourage governments to think about um, developing domestic capital markets, and we can sort of think about um, bond markets, government bond markets is often being uh, really really central to uh, to that. Um, that being said, I think we also see that the extent to which governments have actually tried to do this and have found success in doing this does um does vary. So, for instance, you know, governments make different choices in terms of um how they try to create incentives to hold their own bonds. So uh, Amy Pond and Tim Betts have these uh, interesting papers about sort of, governments sometimes privileging their own debt in domestic regulatory frameworks to kind of create a captive audience for their debt. Or when we see governments privatizing their pension systems, that can be a means of kind of creating demand uh, for government debt, right? Especially if sort of um, how government debt is risk-weighted looks different than how other assets are are risk-weighted. So I wouldn't deny the role of international financial institutions uh, in in these outcomes, but I would say the extent to which they've had an impact and the extent to which governments have done this is still going to vary um, across countries and over time. And as a card carrying political scientist, I would say that variation is uh, often around uh, around politics and not around economics.
2: Well, Lena, thank you so much for coming to join us today. Um, and we look forward to many, many more papers and many more conversations about the intersection between political science and sovereign debt and hopefully we can fix a parking ticket for you someday
1: yes thank you you so much (laughs) it's great to talk to both of you thank you